As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and an episode where we'll hit your listener questions with the same accuracy and tenacity of a Sergio Descalazzo. Uh-huh. Yeah. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man whose national team sits one point, one point above Canada in CONCACAF World Cup qualification. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. Hello, though Canada is geographically above us, they will never be above us in the table. Mm, we'll see. I mean, it's close, Taylor. One point. One point. I don't love the awkward silence there as everybody's like, ah, we'll see. Because, yeah. yeah, we might see. We might see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, a Guardian article, Taylor, the, the, the headline, Canada are stronger than ever and the best may be yet to come. Looking at making the World Cup for the first time since Mexico 86. Carl Larin, top CONCACAF goal Whatever. scorer in qualities at the moment. America Junior is not looking bad, right, Tay Tay? Uh, look, that's the Guardian writing that. The Guardian is an English publication. I assume they're just mad because we had an actual revolution, whereas Canada was just politely like, hey, can we be our own country? And I think that they like that more. So I feel like there's some loyalties to Canada. There's probably some bad feelings about stealing Owen Hargraves from Canada. So the Guardian, I'm <laughs> assuming, is just kind of like trying to make it up to them. Maybe so. They still have our queen on their money. So I suppose that's uh, that's a thing. <laughs> Maybe so, Taylor. <laughs> Anyway, also here is a man whose nation will hope to join Canada at the World Cup via the UEFA playoffs so that the two nations can forge an alliance of nations directly to the north of much superior nations, Graham Rutherford. <laughs> Hello, Ryan. Yes, we're all, we're all, I mean, we're all going to the World Cup, are we not? Like, we should all get jackets because that's definitely not tempting fate or anything at all. We, you know, I mean, you America, England and Scotland jackets. Hasty, Graham. Don't, don't be too hasty on your part. Hey, four wins in a row, baby. You can't bring me down today. <laughs> And of course, I mean no offence by my intro there to Canada and just a little bit of offence to Scotland. But Graham, Scotland on a good break of uh, dramatic late winners lately. Israel and the mighty Faroe Islands falling oh, at the sword on. of the Scots. Oh, my, my nerves are shredded after that Faroe Islands game. So the Israel game, so it was kind of like a little bit like a, a Scotland national team of Scott Pilgrim versus the world where we had to face all our kind of ghosts from the past. So Israel, we've played about a thousand times in the last three years. We've, we've, I think we've beaten them once in eight attempts or something. And then Faroe Islands, who Scotland uh, famously struggle against and have struggled against throughout the years. So yeah, after getting the big one against Israel, which felt like a little bit of an exorcism, um, Full Hamden, last minute winner from 2-1 two, two down at half time to then struggling over the line against the Faroe Islands. Yeah, that was that was not ideal, but we got we got the win and we're now 1-1 one, one away from, from the playoffs. Qatar is coming into sight. I can't wait to stay in one of those big cruise ships that they're, uh, that they're bringing in for hotel rooms. So if Scotland qualified, Graham, you'll go? You'll go to Qatar? Um... If I get a ticket, I don't. I don't know that. I've not looked that far ahead. I mean, I need to get the jacket first. Ryan. That's true. 
So we're all going to get like Hard Rock Cafe style jackets, you mean? Like, so we can all go around yeah. as a gang of qualified nations. Like, you know those PSG jackets that they were wearing uh, a few weeks ago? Like <laughs> some of those, but with the country that of our, of our, of our birth on the, on the back. All right. I'm getting on Etsy right now to try and organize that. Thank you very much, Graham. Uh, rounding out our crew is a man who would make a much better FIFA president than Gianni Infantino because he wouldn't make us do the World Cup every two years, Joe Lowry. Or would you, Joe? Would you? Uh- I don't think I would um, because of how many games that would be. I mean, I just think back to the Euros, guys. We watched so many soccer games. Uh, and so for my own selfish means, I'm anti-World Cup every two years because, man, the the workload. Although, on the other hand, guys, the jackets. Think of all the jackets we could have. I really do like the visuals of oh, all of us in leather jackets. We all have maybe a little nickname or a symbol on the back. I think this could really go somewhere, you guys. You're right, Joe. When, we, when we're older gentlemen looking back on our careers and we look in our wardrobes and we've got every two-year jackets instead of every yeah. four-year jackets, you're right. There's something okay. to that. All right, well, to your to your World Cup is happening, folks. Um, Gianni and I are on the same page. We both talked to Arson about it. We're all we're all <laughs> aboard this plan. Uh, uh, your friend Gianni. Don't, don't, uh, I don't think Arson needs another jacket, to be honest. <laughs> he, he does have trouble. We we'll have to get like a Velcro one, maybe. Yeah, no zippers, guys. No zippers. <laughs> yeah. Magnetic buttons that just clip together. He doesn't have to worry about yeah. it. Oh, they'll have those in the future. Don't you worry about that. Oh. Or maybe like a Marty McFly one that like dries itself automatically. <laughs> It'll be there soon. Um, Joe, your friend Gianni in Mark. He's quoted as saying, the Super Bowl is played every year. Why not a World Cup every two? The reputation of an event depends on its quality, not its frequency. Every year you have a Super Bowl, Wimbledon or the Champions League, (laughs) and everyone is excited and waiting. Woo! Logic! There we go. Um, Joe, you know, I think actually there's four. He mentioned Wimbledon there. There's four Grand Slams every year. Indian Wells is right now. I think that means, hence, ergo, therefore, at least two World Cups a year is appropriate. Why, why stop at two, I guess, each year? Let's shoot for at least once a month. I don't see why we would just stop at every two years yeah. or twice a year. We, we can really blow this thing up, guys. Can you all stop giving them ideas? Like, please? Because <laughs> this is going to happen. Because someone's going to hear this and be like, you know what? We should do that. Fall and spring World Cups. Let's get it done. There are 80 regular season games in the NBA, so uh, let's have 80 World Cups. <laughs> These are the people running our game. Like, I, I, th- that reasoning from Infantino was quite, quite something. FIFA needs another revenue stream. I think it's clear. Aren't they trying to make EA Sports pay like crazy money to license the name yep. on their video game now? They're Billion doing anything dollars. to try and add mm-hmm. to those massive cash reserves, it seems. Oh, boy. Which, which you know, most nonprofits do that. I think that's a thing that we all know. Most nonprofits headquartered in Switzerland are always about uh, adding more money to their, I'm assuming, illicit bank accounts. Did I read that? Did I read that FIFA are looking to move their headquarters to the states from Switzerland? I'm sure I read probably, that recently. Probably to Delaware. Yeah, <laughs> or Richmond. I mean, they would not be welcome here. Delaware. I think I listened to a Planet Money podcast once where they talked about like the places with the largest tax loopholes where you could go about registering a company and having a bunch of shell companies and they investigated all the different islands that are normally linked to that type of thing and their conclusion was that Delaware is the easiest one to uh, to utilize those loopholes. I literally just listened to that episode, Taylor. That's incredible. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you two, your finance podcast. I like your style. Um, for, for FIFA, sure. What is next- finance? <laughs> It's that thing that FIFA are interested in, I think. Okay, there we uh, go. Taylor. Um, but the next step for them, surely, is like a hollowed-out v- volcano like a Bond villain as, <laughs> as their uh, headquarters. Like a, like a no-time-to-die villain, indeed. stop giving them ideas. <laughs> like, this is going to happen. They're going to build some island, a volcanic island, in the middle of the Atlantic or Pacific, and then they will be not subject to any sort of jurisdiction. They'll have their own law. They already have their jails when the World Cup rolls around. I'm a little bit concerned about like FIFA having this global army that we're not prepared for. Ah, oh, just picture it. The volcanic island, waterfalls of Budweiser. Oh, marvelous. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Uh, why don't we get to some listener questions, though, rather than fantasizing about FIFA's uh, prospective headquarters, gents. Let's get the ball rolling with Mr. Josh McCarty, who asks, why are professional footballers not more capable of playing with both feet strongly? All right, Josh. Isn't it as easy as saying, hey, practice doing that thing, but with the other foot now? Now, um, this is, I'm presuming, gents, there's an element of biomechanics and some brain function stuff here, and we can get deep into the physiology of all this. But uh, so, so there are some famous players who are famously two-footed. Uh, the, ones, the ones that spring to mind for me would be Glenn Hoddle. 
uh, Zinedine Zidane and probably Paolo Maldini. It's very rare to be able to be as strong with both feet as one another. I mean, even Leo Messi does favour one of his feet. Uh, Graham, can you explain why soccer players aren't as strong with each feet? Each? Oh, gosh, grammar. Explain it, Graham. (laughs) Well, first of all, I think maybe... One thing to note is I think most elite players are actually pretty good with, with both both feet. I think it's once you, you go down to the lower leagues, you'll, you'll get players who pretty much can't kick a ball with their, their wrong foot. Yes, Sterling Albion and I am talking about you. That's the sort of <laughs> level we're talking about. But I think the reason, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe there's someone's got a, a better explanation than this, but the reason is working on your weak foot is difficult and takes time. And so only the, the kind of most committed actually, actually actually manage it and i and i guess you know maybe maybe the reason you don't get truly ambidextrous players is the fact that you know the size of the pitch and soccer has positions and so players don't really need to be ambidextrous and imbalance isn't actually necessarily a a, a bad thing um you know if if you have being strong on one side if you're in a certain position is 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 a strength um and you maybe wouldn't need the to be that great on the other side but other than that, I guess, um, yeah, I'm struggling a little bit. <laughs> Joe, can you write with both your hands? Yes, but my handwriting's bad with my right hand, which is my dominant hand, and it's illegible and takes forever with my left hand. So to, <laughs> yeah. an, to an extent, yes. I think that's kind of the point that Graham's making, and isn't it? It's not necessarily necessary in the game to, um, to use both feet, as it is not necessary to be ambidextrous with one's hands, Joe. I think there's a a part of that here, right? Although I do think the more you can do things with both feet in soccer, the better off you are. And I guess maybe I'd push back slightly to what Graham's saying. I I think there is a big gap, even at the professional level, between most players' dominant foot and their non-dominant foot. And I'm not saying, Graham, that you're saying there's no gap or anything like that. But I do think it can be pretty extreme at times, even at the pro level. For me, so much of this this question from Josh, which I love, by the way, it really made me think about this, and I, I love that. I think so much of this comes down to a player's individual tendencies and their natural biology. Ryan, you kind of led that here with this question. You can and should train and practice individual skills with both feet, right? Shooting, dribbling, passing, all that stuff. You should work on that stuff with both feet. But it is incredibly, incredibly challenging to override your body's natural tendency to be right foot dominant or left foot dominant. It's just like being right-handed or left-handed. Your body is is set to be, in most cases, with barring a few exceptions, I guess, is set to be either left-handed or right-handed, left-footed or right-footed. There's, I mean, it's believed that that even ties into your brain and in which side of your brain. So there's there's a lot of depth to this question from a medical standpoint, and I do think that is the foundation. I can practice as much as I want with my left foot, which is my weak, my weak foot, between now and Sunday, if I have a Sunday league game. But I will bet you anything, guys, no matter how much I practice, and even if I practice for weeks and weeks and weeks, and even if I practice when my body's actually still developing and I could really get better at soccer in, in, in a quicker way, no matter how much I practice, when I'm under pressure in that game, I'm still going to default to my right foot. And I think we see that even at the highest levels of soccer, players still default to their preferred, their dominant foot, despite all of the countless hours that they put into training their weak foot. I'd agree with everything Joe said there. I would add, though, that like if you are, uh, to Josh's question, if you were to go out and just work over and over, I'm much stronger on my right foot than my left foot. So if I were going to go out and just work on my left foot over and over again, theoretically, that would help. But I, I use this analogy a lot uh, until I can find a better one. But there's the story about Shaquille O'Neal always trying to improve his free throws <laughs> and Phil Jackson saying basically... Like, it's not that he's bad at free throws, it's that he's using a flawed technique. And he can practice that technique all he wants, but it's still flawed. And until he fixes the mechanics of the shot, it's going to continue to be erratic. And I think that, like, if you're just going out there and practicing with your left foot, it is unnatural. You you don't just have the natural flow you would. If I shoot with my right foot, I know where it's supposed to land. I know how to control my body. I know how to contort it to put it like to the far post to the near post, I don't know as much of that with my, my left foot. It's like foot. balance and, so, and things like that. Yeah. And I think it's it's the same to me as why like children are better at learning languages. Why like uh dancing, for example. Like I did I, I took like uh cotillion. I went to like white people dance classes where I learned, you know, like the foxtrot and the waltz, but like I didn't learn salsa. And I think I could learn Salsa now, I could take lessons and and sort of like practice and practice and practice, and I would get okay at salsa dancing, but I will never be as good at it as a kid 
who has been dancing from the time they could walk. And there are people, and like I think that's what happens with soccer as well. You can always tell people who kind of came to the game later versus people who grew up playing it and probably versus people who grew up playing it with both feet. And so I think as you get older, to Graham's point, you're sort of set in what is natural versus what you have to work on and what you have to work on if it's not sort of easy to figure out. You can improve it and you can get more accurate with it, certainly. But I think when you're in those high pressure moments when you have to make split second decisions or rapid fire decisions, you're going to default to the dominant foot that allows you to play and think as naturally as you can. Yeah, Taylor, I I totally agree with what you're saying there. I don't really have any scientific evidence, but just anecdotally, I think if you're a professional player and at that stage of your career, you're looking to work on your your weak foot, there's there's a ceiling to how far you can go with that and how how much you can improve if you're going to be good with both feet you really need to be looking at the fundamentals when you are essentially a kid i guess yep. like that's where you're going to learn those skills and if you wait too long I, as i say i think there's only so much progress you can make i think what the, the part i'm interested in gents is how much of it is like hardwired into you, the nature nurture i suppose so if you're Paolo Maldini and you're very competent with both feet, is it because you've had Cesare Maldini as your dad telling you to use your left foot uh, since you were two years old? Or is there, is it like, you, are you wired differently, I suppose, is, is interesting. Because you read stories about like Neymar saying his dad would tell him, you know, whenever the ball comes to your left side, you hit it with your left foot. Whenever it comes to your right side, right foot. And how there are other players who stay on the training ground for an extra 30 minutes every every session to work on their weak foot. And it's it's interesting you know, some people are wired differently. Some people's brains, left side, right side, and all that jazz. I'm, I've got no medical knowledge on this at all. Um, I'm ranting at this point. But I, what I will say, Taylor, is I'm adding <laughs> another chapter to uh, the biography I'm writing. Taylor Rockwell, the most interesting man in the world, with the dancing chapter now. Thank you very yes. much for that nugget. I mean, yeah, uh, middle class suburbs, baby. That's that's uh, that's what you do, apparently. Uh, I wish I'd learned to have better rhythm because I don't, and I still can't play a musical instrument because. My rhythm is uh, is off. My daughter has rhythm, which is exciting, and we're going to foster that. And to the point of the question, that is the thing that I want to do. I want her to take dance classes, but I also, yeah, I wouldn't mind if she kicked with one foot and then the other so she could learn how to use both. I would be interested to know who the player is who is as good with one foot as with the other uh, because I think that's increasingly and exceptionally rare. My guess would be that Neymar was probably playing with both and learn to use both, but will default to a dominant foot. Same for Messi, same for Ronaldo. So I think you can get, it's basically about how big the gap is between dominant foot and weaker foot. And for some players, it's very, very big. I'll mention one of those players later on in the show. And for others, I think it's closer. And then final point for me is that I think a lot of the time it comes down to, as soccer so often does, playing on instinct. And I, for me at least, if I am winding up to hit a shot with my left foot and I have the time to know I'm shooting this with my left, I will think about the mechanics. And it's not different than like when a word suddenly sounds strange to you, even though you've said it a thousand times, or if you're playing a video game and you're suddenly like, wait, what controls do what? Like your brain just has that moment of overthinking. And if I have time to think about it, I will miss hit that shot. If I'm shooting with my left and not really thinking about it and playing on instinct, it tends to be much more accurate. And I'm guessing that's the, that's the case for players at higher levels it's that they can do it but they would prefer to use their dominant foot when it comes to goal scoring opportunities and big pass opportunities the player that i remember who i say remember he's still playing but he's playing in <laughs> guitar so i haven't seen him play for a while is uh, santi cazorla so he used to take mm-hmm. free kicks with depending on the position on the, on the pitch he would he would take it with his left or his right foot and i always thought that was very impressive yeah, Always smiling. there are some players where the gap between left and right is small, as you say, Taylor. And for me, the two are Maldini and Glenn Hoddle. Glenn Hoddle, I don't even think, declares one which foot was dominant in his game. He was uh, very special with both feet. Not that the England managers of his time cared particularly about that. Uh, thank you very much, Josh, for the question. Uh, let's move on to Kyle Dominey, who asks... Or says, we make so much out of the team and culture struggle over Mexican-American dual nationals here in the US. Are there other specific comparable situations slash environments slash dynamics with other nations in the world? Hashtag dual national panic. Not a hashtag I was aware of, but um, I'll I'll kick things off with... um, 
England has this dynamic with certain other nations, particularly the home nations. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. there, are, there are English players born in England who don't represent us. There's one called Erling Haaland. Uh, there's one called Gio Reyna, for example. I could go on. But, uh, Graham, yeah, quite a few um, home nations players. Um, uh, Jack Grealish, for example, played Republic of Ireland up to 21s. Ryan Giggs was an England player until he decided to uh, not go to any international tournaments. Um, yep. And there's quite a lot of that, uh, isn't there, Graham? Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like England's at the centre of all of it. You don't get Scotland versus Wales. You don't get kind of Ireland versus Scotland. Well, a little bit. Aidan McGeady, Republic of Ireland versus Scotland was, was a thing for a while. But it was, it's Scotland versus England, England versus Wales, England versus Republic of Ireland, England versus Northern Ireland. Um, yeah, that's definitely a thing. It's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a culture struggle between England and Scotland from my perspective, specifically from the Scottish side of things. We're very, Looking at beyond the kind of dual national thing, so we've had some a lot of players. Matt Ritchie uh, is maybe a notable one. He was not very popular as a Scotland player, but not because he was born in England, because he pulled out a few squads and and then said he didn't really want to play for the national team. But for instance, London Dykes, who's a full on Aussie, born in Australia. Grown up in Australia, raised in Australia, lived there until he was about twenty. He's a tartan army, tartan army hero. So it's not, it's not really about in terms of the dual nationals. Like we've had players, James Morrison played for Scotland. He was he was um, a favourite of the tartan army. But looking at kind of the, the cultural struggle, that side of things, we're very insecure about measuring up well to the English game in the Premier League when that's never really that realistic. And um, I just, I just think, why wouldn't we want to do things our own way? Our game has its own personalities, its own idiosyncrasies. And it comes from the top of the game. I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast before. When we rebranded our league pyramid 10 years ago, we com- we copied the English naming convention. So we have a premiership, a championship, league one, league two. That to me says that we're, we're just looking to replicate what they do down south. So that, that all plays into a, an insecurity and, um, that, encapsulates everything from the dual nationals that we have in our national team to as I say the structure of our league and I just would like us to it frustrates me a lot when we have so much to be proud about of our own game and we continually compare ourselves to England and I think that's a similar situation with some of the other home nations as well imitation Graham the best form of flattery that's what I find um the other big one gents that strikes that's me that's what Germany say about England huh <laughs> the other one that strikes me is um, <laughs> Albania and Switzerland. Um, yeah. Granit Xhaka, who uh, was born in Basel, plays for Switzerland. His brother Tolan, who plays for Albania, born in the same place in Basel. Uh, you'll remember Euro 2016 when Switzerland and Albania played one another. Nine of Albania's squad had the right to play for Switzerland. Six of Switzerland's squad were eligible, eligible for Albania. Um, there's some historical geopolitical reasons for this. Switzerland's a neutral country, of course. It's quite got quite a diverse um, uh, people. People have gone there fleeing conflict and oppression and the Xhakas uh, emigrated to Switzerland uh, due to the Kosovan War in the early 90s. And there's a lot of, I think, I'm not sure if we call it dual nationalism or anything like that, but Taylor, when it comes to Serbia, Kosovo and Albania, Mm. there's a little bit of um, uh, competing for players in that area (laughs) of the world as well. I mean, there is, but simultaneously, if you are Croat and you could play for Serbia, you are not playing for Serbia and vice versa. Like, I think there are still ethnic divisions that divide. And with that in mind, I, I would say that there are similar circumstances with different countries. I think England and a lot of the ones you've already mentioned, but also maybe like Jamaica, Nigeria, Ghana even. But I don't think there's anything really comparable to USA, Mexico. Agreed. Because there's so many different factors at play there is the border there is the historic rivalry they've fought wars but like so there's that connection but then there's the large immigrant population uh in the united states that basically like i've talked to paul tenorio about this paul tenorio is would have if he played for the national team would have been dual national between the usa and costa rica and it's not like a a distinct identity it's not like he values one over the other they exist simultaneously and that's the distinction i'm drawing with like Serbia in, in Croatia is I think there are hard lines about identity in other countries and there's more fluidity in countries that I think have larger immigrant populations. But I think that rivalry and the fact that it's also balanced as well, that there are times when the U.S. is dominant, there are times when Mexico is dominant, but I wouldn't say one is completely dominant over the other and no disrespect to Scotland, but as Graham was just saying, like it, it is you're emulating England and you and it's not as though they're going like back and forth all the time a Scottish player who's eligible for England if Gareth Southgate calls I I think short of like nationalistic pride they're probably leaning towards 
uh, England because it means more World Cups, more competitive moments, probably a higher salary for you in the long run. I think it's just a bit more of a decision between USA and Mexico. And so it feels more uncertain more often. Will this player choose the USA or Mexico? It doesn't seem like it comes down to footballing reasons. A lot of the time it comes down to team atmosphere and atmosphere in the countries and lots of other personal decisions. So I think it's it's a it's a pretty unique thing that might just be my bias, but I don't think it is. Well, one one thing I wanted to add, Taylor, or I guess maybe rehash slightly on what you're saying, because I agree with a lot of what you just said. I think one thing that separates USA-Mexico in this dual national discussion is that they're relatively equal in a soccer yeah. sense. And you mentioned this, right? Mexico certainly has the edge right now, despite, I think, U.S. winning those couple of finals over the summer. Mexico is on top of the Ocho, and, and they're just, I, I think, a better team. And I think it's hard to argue with that. But there's a real fight for players who could readily contribute to both programs. And I think that's the key. There's there's a pretty equal ground here between USA and Mexico. Ryan, to go back to your Switzerland-Albania example, I think there is obviously a great cause for that to be brought up in this discussion. But there's a pretty big gap there, right, between Switzerland and Albania. Just using FIFA rankings, which is a crude way to make this point. But Switzerland are 15th in FIFA rankings and Albania are 66th. There's not that gap between the U.S. and Mexico. There are players right now that these teams are fighting over to get in and really get involved with the program. Efra Alvarez was trying to decide between the USA and Mexico, and he ended up playing for Mexico. He's got caps for them already after just really making this decision full-time in the last year. You've got David Ochoa, who hasn't played for Mexico yet, but he's declaring that he's going to play for them. He's made that official. Julian Araujo as well. All three of those guys have gone to Mexico, and Mexico will continue to get most of the players in this battle, I think, for quite some time. But then you've got Ricardo Pepe, who decides to play for the United States, and he's made a big impact for the U.S. men's national team already. You see players being brought into the fold between two relatively equal national teams, and all of these players could realistically contribute for these teams in the near future. I don't know that we really see that anywhere else around the world. Yeah, and and continuing with that, the other difference I would say is that like maybe Holland is an outlier because Holland, I think, makes literally any team better but aside from that if england lose a player to scotland or to nigeria who cares exactly it's sort of like yeah we've got like a lot of like like musa like Yunus musa playing for the united states was eligible for i i think i'm correct in saying like spain england and ghana as well and i think england could have probably gotten him and could have recruited him and brought him in and made him feel like part of the team but they don't need to they have i mean he's going to be their 12th choice midfielder probably whereas for the u.s and for mexico i think they're both in that lower tier whichever tier you want to put them in you can but neither one has ever won a world cup neither one like has really made that deep of a run while playing dominant soccer and mexico has the whole quinto partido so it seems like there's this it it matters more when the u.s loses a player to mexico and it feels like it matters when mexico loses a player to the united states in a way that i think it doesn't for a lot of the other larger countries because they just have so much more depth. And there are established relationships. You have Brazil and Portugal, where sometimes you have a person born in Brazil playing for Portugal and vice versa. Same thing for Italy and Argentina and Brazil of late. Uh, and so there are relationships, Germany and Poland with Klose and Podolski. But for the most part, those feel sort of like immigration pipelines, family connections, historical immigration patterns, but less so that sort of regional boundary rivalry, sharing of players, like immigrant populations, all of those factors, I think, uh, make that the basically the, the rivalry, the dual national competition between the USA and Mexico pretty unique. Is it cynical of me to suggest that the, the, the dual national argument uh, or, or when a player makes a selection, when they have the opportunity to play for more than one nation, it's not mm-hmm. about culture and it's not about pride. It's about professional careers. Um, if I'm a Mexican centre-back and, or sorry, if I'm a centre-back and Mexico have great depth at that position, but the US doesn't, I'm more inclined to pick the US. Or even like Sergino Dest, uh, like, does he feel that he's going to get more games in nas- international tournaments playing for the US rather than, than Holland? It's, 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 it's more of a career thing for the player themselves. I think in a lot of situations that's going to factor in, but I would be hesitant to say it's any more than a factor. It's going to be a case-by-case basis with a lot of these Mexican-American players that are choosing one side or the other. There have been great pieces written by them or about them that really kind of debunk that, at least to an extent, right? With with Julian Araujo, as an example, he's going to play for Mexico. He decided that in the last month or so, or at least made it public, 
there's maybe more room for him to play with Mexico at, at right back than with the U.S. men's national team. But there's so many other factors here as well, culturally. So, Ryan, I think I think you're right to an extent, but I would be hesitant to to say that that's like the the primary reason for everyone. It might be for one or two players or for a small percentage, but there's just a lot of other nuance here too. And Dest is Dest is a really weird example too because Dest turns down a call up from the U.S. To, I think he went to camp with the Netherlands and, and experienced it and talked to, I think it was Frank DeBoer at the time. It might have been Kuman. I forget who Koeman. was in charge of the Netherlands. Uh, but essentially, it seems like wasn't as convinced and maybe wasn't convinced about like a guarantee of playing time, but maybe just didn't enjoy the, the squad harmony and the vibe with the team the way he did with the United States. I, I think it's just always going to be different factors. I think certainly there have been times when a German-American recognized, I'm not going to make Germany, but I might make the United States. So I'm going there for career reasons. But I think there are people who who do identify with the United States and grow up wanting to be American or grow up wanting to be in the States. And I have cousins who grew up abroad but still identify as american and i think they would probably be torn if they were asked to make that choice and i think a lot of that's the case for a lot of dual nationals so i think it's just a really difficult personal decision at the end of the day i can sympathize with that because whisper it i'd rather be american anyway um we can tell by the food you've been eating in italy (laughs) (laughs) ryan one one interesting thing though i and then i will try to stop is that like your 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 mentioning of holland and reina it is an interesting element to me that like england is the premier league is one of the dominant leagues in the world if not the dominant league and so you have players i mean reina gio reina is born there because claudia reina was playing there erling holland is born there because alfinga holland was was playing there and so you are going to have those dual nationals who I think are there because their parents were there and then they move back to their home countries. It's interesting when the U.S. has those and what MLS can mean for that because Jesus Ferreira, for example, uh, son of Paulo Ferreira, who came to Major League Soccer to play soccer. It's not like he was from the United States, but uh, Jesus Ferreira was born here because his dad played here and then stayed here and now he plays for the U.S. So I think it's cool to see how leagues can have an impact and uh just unfortunately for you nobody wants to play for england ah, well I've, I've got a difficult decision ahead or my sorry my kids do taylor because they're of course born in the u.s they have u.s citizenship and they also uh have british citizenship via uh myself and my wife so um they're gonna have to make the choice of who to play for when they're older it's tricky it's tricky I mean, one of those will win you the world cup and one of those will get you managed by phil neville Eboy, decision made. <laughs> Not anymore. All right. Not anymore. Not anymore. England are good. England are very good. I don't know. Neville, Neville will still be lurking. He could play. He can, maybe he'll be a manager of a different nation. Who knows, Taylor? Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more listener questions shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. We are taking your listener questions, such as this one from Zach Lippert, who says, who are some of the most unique players, unique New York players in world football? Not necessarily the best, but players with such unique skill sets, they can't be replaced. Kind of like knuckleball pitches in baseball or quarterbacks that are also excellent runners. The name, Taylor, that stood out to me when I first read this question was Edison of Manchester City. Uh, oh, that's a good one. In his distribution, which is unreal. Some of those long-range parties where huh. he gets the assist on the goal are incredible. He can do, I feel, what no one else can do. Maybe you put Manuel Neuer in that same category, but for kind of different reasons for the sweeper-keeper stuff and the confidence that he shows. But Taylor, that was the one that stood out to me to kick the ball rolling off. Mm-hmm. I've got a few more for you. I think the one that immediately came to mind was Ricardo Koreshma and the Travella. Ooh. That. That's a thing that, like, it's similar to Ribery, I guess, in the cutting inside. You know he's going to do it, and yet you still can't defend it. Koreshma will pull that Travella out of nowhere and always 
hits it perfectly. I don't know how he pulls it off. It could be a pass. It could be a shot. It could be a through ball. It could be a long ball. He's able to do it. And I know other people can do that, but not with the regularity that he can. While we're talking about regularity and cons- consistency, Bendit like Beckham is named that for a reason. He really could hit a ball. And I, and I struggle to think of another player who was that dangerous when it comes to set pieces, not just free kicks, but all set pieces. He has the corner for the the winner in 1999, uh, sticking with Man United. I mentioned this earlier, but Antonio Valencia used his left foot maybe three times in his entire Manchester United career. <laughs> and that that was a known thing. And he still was able to be an effective crosser of the ball and passer of the ball and wide attacker. Doesn't really make a ton of sense to me, but he was. And then the last one, this one's a little bit, Maybe maybe of an outlier, I'm not sure, but I would say Little Messi, just his frame makes him pretty unique. That he's 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 shorter, but he's wide, so he's difficult to knock off the ball, but then he doesn't lose any agility and he doesn't lose any quickness. And I think his build is is a big part of why he's able to do some of the things he can do and how he defies gravity sometimes. So those are four that came to mind for me. Another one that's just come to my mind right now is Arjun Robin. Uh, is he unique in the fact that you knew exactly what he was going to do whenever he approached the box? Come I mean, in, you couldn't stop him. And good. you couldn't yep. stop it. Yep. Yeah, that's I it. would say so. Graham, what else yeah. you got, bud? Yeah, so this, Joe mentioned earlier in the, in, the, in the pod about a question that really made him think, and not that the other ones didn't make me think, but of today's questions, this, this was the one that, that really, I really like this question. And I'm not sure how good my answers are, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. So one of the names I came up with was Akraf Hakimi. Um, the way he is just a one-man wing, I don't think there's currently another player like him. Danny Alves perhaps showed us what was possible for a right back in terms of getting forwards, but Hakimi plays the game like a forward. Um, but he's a right back or a right wing back or a right winger. I don't really know what you call him, but he's just, as I say, he's a one man right, right winger. Yeah, exactly. Um, sticking with PSG, another player I picked out was uh, Di Maria, Angel Di Maria. In many ways, he is like a conventional winger, but you don't really see his work rate in other wide players. And in his sense, he's kind of like a box to box midfielder who tends, who, who actually plays out, excuse me, who actually plays out wide. Um, and maybe that explains why he was really effective as a central midfielder for... He played central midfield for a while for Real Madrid, didn't he? Uh, I'm pretty sure. And then another one, I'm, I'm going to throw this name in. And I think we're going to see more midfielders like this player. But I'm going to mention Jude Bellingham. Um, who I think we're going to see more central midfielders who are not defined by their position, but by their skill set. So I think there's other players like Camavinga, who's obviously just moved to Real Madrid. Uh, Chawamene, who is playing for France, uh, plays for Monaco. They're a bit like him, but I think Bellingham is the best example of this sort of player who, is he is he a defensive midfielder? No. Is he a playmaker? No. Is he a box-to-box midfielder? Sometimes it's almost like he's a winger playing in central midfield and, and sometimes uh, at some point. So he's he's a bit weird as a player, but he's so effective. So those were the, the three current players that I picked out. Good stuff. Joe, any names stick out for you? I love your Aderson shout, Ryan. That's the first one that I thought of as well. Just hitting 70-yard volleys on a rope out to, <laughs> to some attacking player. It's unreal. Adama Traore was another one that stood out to me. His combination of dribbling ability, speed, and strength, I think, is wholly unique in soccer right now. He's attempting 10.6 dribbles per 90 minutes in the Premier League this season, which is like way more than anyone else in the Premier League who's playing as much as he is or even less than he is. He is, I think he is unique and his skill set is unique. Holland, uh, incredibly fast, gets up to speed so fast with his long legs, can take two or three steps and be at top speed. That was that was kind of a shoe in here for me. And the last one uh, that I've got is Virgil van Dijk. And I thought of this one just a bit before we started recording. Kind of like Adama Traore in that his build, and I guess Holland to an extent as well, his build makes him extremely unique and his athleticism makes him extremely unique. His combination of size, speed, and strength is ridiculous and his 1v1 defending on top of that I don't know that you can replace someone like that in that skill set I don't think there's anyone else in soccer that you could put into that role and have them perform in the same way that Virgil van Dijk does so yeah those are those are some of the players that I thought of for this question can I can I mention a player who's not necessarily an elite level player who I think is just unique you don't see another player like him is is Dan Byrne who plays for Brighton who is a six foot five right back and I think that's pretty Ooh, unusual. that's good. Mm, I like that. I think one other player or category of players, I should say, that I would like to nominate for this uh, answer is uh, the utility player. 
someone like James Milner, because if we're talking about someone with unique skill sets that can't be replaced, James Milner could do it all. You know, central midfield, defensive midfield, attacking midfield. He played for a striker, as players as a striker for a while at Man City, I believe. Winger, fullback. Yeah, he he can literally play. I think you could put him in, in goal and he'd be fine. Um, and so players like him, maybe you put Ashley Young in the same utility draw, uh, being play, playing in positions all over the field. But that's the kind of player I think who is very difficult to replace. A puzzle piece who can fit in any slot, if that makes sense. Aren't there, though, like, like if if we have multiple puzzle pieces, doesn't that kind of go against the question? If you have James Milner who can do it all, and also Ashley Young who can do it all, can't they both do it all and therefore be replaced? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm thinking too hard. Zach's got me thinking in circles here, guys. Yeah, you've you've picked the hole in my uh, in my nomination. <laughs> sorry, I accept, sorry. I accept your uh, statement there. All right, Zach, that was an excellent question. Thank you very much. We'll keep thinking of those as well. Uh, let's move on to Matt Cost. Hello, Matt. Uh, controversial question time. Matt sounding the klaxon. Would Bradley have provided the direction and leadership the USMNT lacked against Panama to win the match? Uh, Taylor, I presume he's uh, talking about Bradley Cooper here. I'm not hmm. sure what he would have added being an actor uh, from the Screen Guild. but uh, no Charm? Uh, <laughs> maybe some charm. Maybe more charm than 34-year-old Michael I think Michael it was Bradley, Bradley Walsh, actually. <laughs> so, uh, Taylor, yeah, uh, th- he's 34. What would he have added to one of the youngest rosters uh, in World Cup qualification history for the US? I mean, certainly veteran presence and veteran know-how, and he's been there before, but I I don't think he would have made that big of a difference, no. Uh, Because we did see Tyler Adams come on at halftime, and even he couldn't turn it around, and I think he is the most important player for the United States right now, because I don't think it was a one-player solution against Panama. I think a lot of things needed to be adjusted and figured out and calmed down, and what I don't think would have helped is slowing the rate of play down and slowing possession down and having the number six drop between the two center backs, getting the ball, then picking his head up and looking around. I think we were kind of already doing that. And that's not really a knock against Bradley. I'm going off of the last times we saw him for the U.S. and the limited time I've seen with him in Toronto. And it's not like his speed has improved. It's not like he's able to cover a bunch of ground and close stuff down. I, and so I think the U.S. didn't ne- really need more possession. They needed meaningful possession and meaningful chance creation. I'm not sure he would have supplied that. Uh, one interesting wrinkle would be to this question is if Matt meant Bob Bradley that's what as I opposed thought, to Taylor. Michael Bradley. Um, <laughs> oh. That's the interesting thing for me is oh. would Bob Bradley have oh, been so able funny. to get a result? And I don't really know an answer to that because it, it, we would have to then like look at an entirely different team coached by Bob Bradley and what that could mean. But I would say I think Bob Bradley probably dropped some points in World Cup qualifying in his tenure. So I don't know. But either Bradley, if there were one going to make a difference, I think Bob is more likely than Michael. I Too think, many Bradleys. I think I completely read the question wrong. I apologize, Matt. I think it probably is referring to Bob, right? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. First, I, yeah, I answered see, it as Michael. I honestly, my answer right. was Michael. I, I, I took it as Michael Bradley, but now I'm in the same boat as you, reading it again. <laughs> it seems like it's probably Bob Bradley. Well, and I took it as Bob Bradley, and now I really do think Matt meant Michael Bradley, because that feels like <laughs> like something. He's talking about leadership and direction, and initially I thought that was from like a locker room or a coaching standpoint, but I don't know. It now feels to me more like Michael Bradley. Matt, let us know. Please tweet us either way either way i think the answer is either no or just it's impossible to know with michael bradley i don't think he's just not at the level right now guys he's lost that step i don't think michael bradley fixes things with his vocal leadership if we're talking about bob bradley i i am more inclined to think yes that could have helped things uh things obviously for the u.s men's national team look a lot better after that win against costa rica on wednesday night relative to how they did after that loss away to panama I do think the U.S. needs more tactical direction right now. There's a disconnect between between Baralter's stated idea of how he wants this team to play and what we're actually seeing out on the field. That is a problem. I, I really do believe that. Would Bob Bradley fix that problem? We don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but either way, Matt, let us know who you're talking about because we don't know. <laughs> can, I, can I ask a question of the American fans here on the assumption that we're talking about Michael Bradley? So I'm going to use a personal frame of reference to ask this question. So the emergence of... Of, uh, I'm going to talk about him again. Billy Gilmore has given Scotland like a way to control matches in midfield, and it's now got to the point where I'm wondering how we ever coped with without him before. And so when I watched Michael Bradley 
I'm talking way back, like 2014 World Cup cycle. When I watched him then, he was like a similar controlling influence in central midfield, like a like a pass master, someone who would take a grip of games and just kind of like calm it down a little bit. So I watched the US last night against, I watched the first half against Costa Rica and that midfield, Musa, Adams and who am I missing? McKinney. McKinney. Yeah. Who, who does that job for the USA now? And, and is that job one that's needed? And... Is that a player that the US are missing at the moment? Or have I, or am I misread that and there is someone already there who does that? I I don't think, and Taylor, correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree, that's also fine. I don't think there's anyone who really does that pass master job in midfield at this point. One of the things that we've seen in Berhalter's tenure with the national team is a shift away from the Michael Bradley will trap Jackson Yule for, for Graham and Ryan, will trap Jackson Yule. That's the answer. Also the pass Jackson heavy Yule players. Yeah. Um, we've seen a slow, a very slow transition away from the passing distributing number six to a much more all around number six. And I think that's what Tyler Adams does now. So it's not a like for like comparison. Adams and Bradley at their primes, their skill sets are going to be different, but, uh, the, the skill set is still useful. And so it's just a different look and a different tactical approach in midfield. Taylor, are you kind of on board with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the answer is that it probably was Jackson Yule. It's just that we don't need that anymore. and It doesn't really fit the style of play. Um, I think you you pointing out 2014 Bradley is an interesting one because that's right after he moved back to Toronto. And I think there is an argument and obviously aging is a, a part of it. But I wonder if he stays in Italy, if he's playing at a higher level and has to just be faster on the ball if that isn't the way Bradley's game goes. But I think when you move to Major League Soccer, you have a little bit more time. Uh, You're not going to come under as much pressure on a regular basis. And so I don't think he had to develop his game that way. Uh, But I think it was still a part of the way Klinsman wanted to play. I don't think it is the way Burhalter wants to play. And I think, yeah, we don't really have that. I think we have players who could do that if we needed them to. Uh, I think of the three that we started last night, it is probably Tyler Adams. uh, But... He is still, I think, of as like a, a faster, high-tempo player coming from the Red Bull system. Uh, Matt, uh, whichever Bradley you intended, thank you very hmm. much for the question. We'll be back with a couple more after this short break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. We have a question from Michael Hastings Black, who says, if a CONCACAF team is going to force the USMNT to have possession and break them down, what happens if we do the same to them? Uh, Taylor, my instinctive answer to that is the same thing you get in like a dull World Cup finals match or a dull Champions League knockout game. It's cagey, and you hope for a counterattack, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the level of opponent, because if you ask Mexico that question, the answer is the U.S. beats them twice in one summer. Uh, I think you can do the the defensive game plan. I guess Mexico weren't doing it there. Uh, But I, I think what inevitably happens is it's a really dull game to start, and eventually one team does have to be more adventurous, probably the team that is expected to win or has the pressure of needing to get a result ends up sort of coming out of their shell. But I, I think if the U S tried to do it, my guess would be that our opponent would, would stay deeper and not be as adventurous. And eventually because the U S is expected to win against a large percentage of CONCACAF opposition, they would have to come out of that shell uh, for fear of being uh, severely criticized for not even attempting to, to play attacking soccer. Graham, I think what I'd like to see in this circumstance where neither team wants the ball is the ball just to sort of roll around in the centre circle and the players go, no, you have it. No, you touch it. And no one one touches the ball. (laughs) Yeah, open wide for some soccer. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, yes. When the Titans of Portugal will take on the uh, Mashity of Mexico. Nice Simpsons (laughs) reference, Graham. Um, Joe, Joe, what, what are your thoughts on this one? 
I just don't think this can happen really in the way that we're thinking about it where you just have one team in a low block on one end and the other team in a low block on the other end and you've got no man's land in the middle that just doesn't happen in soccer games right I mean you you see maybe bits and pieces of that with teams that aren't all that comfortable in possession but one team's always going to advance and if you're counterattacking against a low block it makes sense to push numbers forward and if the initial counterattack can't break through then you try to establish possession I mean that's kind of how soccer works. And so I don't know that I can really even imagine this situation playing out in my head. I can imagine the U.S. playing a low block against a team like Mexico or against a team that's willing to control the ball and counterattacking. We've seen that even at times in World Cup qualifying. And I think there's there's value to that. But I don't know that we'll really ever see a situation like this where both teams are trying to do the same thing at the same time because you really can't. One team's got to have the ball. You both can't be sort of trying to push the, the south ends of a magnet, the south poles of a magnet together at the same time. It just, it just doesn't work. I think I saw a game at the World Cup in 2014, uh, Belgium and Russia. I think it ended 1-1. I can't remember the score. And it was the dullest game I've ever seen. I think this is what both teams were trying to do <laughs> in that game. And that's what made me think of like a dull, competitive knockout game is generally what happens when both teams are less inclined to go for it and less inclined to a counterattack. I suppose what you ultimately hope for, Joe, is a brave counterattack or two, right? Yeah, you, I mean, you hope for something that's going to allow you to break through, right? In in the situation that Michael's talking about, it's most often we see this play out, at least to a degree, when both teams aren't all that comfortable with the ball. And so they're just desperate to find a way through, and maybe they're not all that well-equipped to control possession, so they do default towards a deeper block and then attacking and counterattacking. But really, to counterattack effectively, you need other players from the other team to have been attacking in the first place, so you can literally counter the attack. So in a sense, you're kind of hoping for a lot of things to happen all at the same time. And one of those things in most cases is the other team showing some sort of team-wide attacking ambition. So again, kind of hard to see this play out. Not that it never happens, because Ryan, you're right, we do see something like this in tournament soccer sometimes. But it's it's pretty rare, and I like like Taylor kind of mentioned earlier, uh, there'd be a lot of unhappy people out there, which would make Greg Berhalter's life even harder than it, it might already be. Does, does anyone remember a game at the 2006 World Cup between Switzerland and Ukraine, which is widely regarded the worst World Cup match of all time, where that this basically happened, I think? Um, there's a Guardian article about it. I, I just Googled it because I remember reading about it. So you should check that out. It, it's renowned for its dullness. Wow, that's quite a thing to ask people to go and look up, Graham. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of into it. I want to know what it looked like and why it was so bad. And the Guardian are always very good about writing about boring games that they've decided to criticize in a fun way. So I'm, I'm kind of into that one, Graham. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for the question there. Let's get one more in today, gents, from Drew Jordan, who says, Recently you talked about players whose bad or criminal behavior off the field would detract from your enjoyment of watching that player or his team. I'd like to flip that to the positive, says Drew. Who are some players whose off-the-field actions make you like them and perhaps their team even more? Drew says Marcus Rashford is the obvious player to come to mind, but he's interested to know if there are other players who you root for because of their contributions to society. I think Marcus Rashford uh, is a very excellent contender there, a player who has literally changed public policy, who literally made the Prime Minister of the UK reverse a decision and for for the better of... The nation, effectively. Uh, Utmost respect for Marcus Rashford to what he did there. I think, Graham, another name that's a recent name that's come to mind for me in this category. It's not technically off the field, but Simon Kier um, for what he did at the Euros. He's got my undying respect for basically saving Christian Eriksen's life. And it's, you know, it's not, it wasn't a sporting action that he did and it wasn't technically off the field, but that's one I, that jumped to me, Graham. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought of, of Simon Kerr, but absolutely, yeah, what he did in, in that moment. I think he's nominated for the Ballon d'Or this year, which, depending on your view, might be taking it a little bit too far. But I think it, I think he deserves recognition for what he did in that match. Definitely. Um, and thinking about other players, uh, Taylor, Didier Drogba, could we put him in there? He's used his status uh, to help lessen the conflicts in his native Ivory Coast. He built a hospital there, given a lot back to his community. He's someone who's um, revered for off-the-field actions too. I would agree. I did a 101 episode about him, in fact, for that very reason, because I was wondering 
how much of his story is myth and how much of it is real. And I, my takeaway was a, a lot of it is real, that he really does have a huge part in trying to calm hostilities in the Ivory Coast about bringing the country together to support the national team. They have a, a charity game in like the rebel capital with that is like the stadium is half government forces, half rebel forces, as I, as I understood it. So I think he is a, a person who has done a lot off the pitch uh, in like both charitable and just humanitarian ways. I have a lot of respect for Didier Drogba. Another one that comes to mind would be Juan Mata with the Common Gold Initiative yeah, yeah. and everything he's done to 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 raise money off the pitch. And then just seems to be a very likable player on it and off of it as well. So those are he has to be uh, the most likable player in world football. Juan I think Mata. So. I and, think so. and and like Rashford's close be- close behind him. So like Taylor, your club has a really likable group of guys right now. It'd be shame yeah. if you had to ruin it in some way. <laughs> well, you say you say that, Graham, yeah. but there is another Man United player who I would arguably, arguably put in this category. And it's one that Taylor might not like. It's Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, uh-huh. 2009. You, you are correct. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you can say what you want about the allegations against him, and obviously they're, credi- <laughs> right. they're credible. Say what I'm you not, want about Stalin. Yeah, I, I am you. not dismissing that in any way at all. But if you look back at his history of um, charitable donations, he's very charitable. Yeah, a uh, hundred grand to the hospital that saved his mother's life when she had a cancer um, uh, diagnosis. Uh, his agent paid for specialist treatment for a nine-year-old boy in the Canary Islands, I believe it was, who had terminal cancer, and he, that was done uh, uh, quietly until uh, I think. The boy's parents revealed it. Um, he sold the golden booty one in 2011 for a million and a half euros and gave the money to fund school uh, schools for children in Gaza. Uh, he was named the world's most charitable sports person in 2015 after donating five million pounds to the relief effort uh, for the earthquake in Nepal that killed over 8,000 people. Uh, donated the entirety of his 600 grand Champions League bonus in 2016 after Real Madrid won the competition. So maybe you're going to call that some positive PR spin for a person who could easily afford it, Taylor. Yeah. But there is some good being done there. Did you mention the haircut? The haircut? Yeah, that was that was one that I will always remember. Is he had? Uh, I'm guessing the answer to that was no. I, I was <laughs> I was writing down the list of things you said. Uh, that he there was one like a game a, a few years ago where he had a very strange. Like he had a series of lines shaved into his head and everybody was like, what is this hairstyle he's gone for? And I think maybe it was the the child who had a brain tumor, but that was like the stitching pattern he had had to have after the procedure. And so Ronaldo had like shaved it in to mirror that. At least that's the story. So there were lots of stories like that. I understand why you included Ronaldo. I just appreciate that the way you did it was by... Doing it as though you knew you had a limited amount of time before I cut you off. <laughs> so I appreciate, I also appreciate that because of that, your rapid fire delivery, it briefly sounded to me like you casually said he killed 8,000 people when you said the, <laughs> the, the volcano hat, I guess, or the landslide. But yeah, that was, that was a moment of like, wait, he did what now? That's on your list of positives. Uh, yeah. Okay. You, you, you are welcome to make that argument for Christiana. Uh, another one uh, on the, uh, the same wavelength as the haircut, Taylor. Apparently, he doesn't get tattoos or he doesn't have a single tattoo so that right. he can regularly give blood as well. Yeah. So that's yeah. that. Yeah. That, that was one of I'm, the ways I'm I learned I'm skeptical that of that, that one. Yeah. I feel like that one might come from also vanity. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Uh, anyone else, Graham, to add to the list of players you gosh darn respect off the field? Um, I'm going to name Jordan Henderson uh, along the same lines as as Rashford. I think he was one of the Premier League players who really came out of the pandemic well. He launched a fund during lockdown to support the NHS, and um, he the question mentioned you know players who off whose off the field actions make you like them more. Henderson for me is a prime candidate because he wasn't my favorite player before, and and maybe this is unfair. He, just as a character, he didn't he didn't really seem like my kind of guy. I don't really know. I, I, I couldn't put my finger on it. it. But he just wasn't one of my favorites. And now I think very different differently of him after that. Uh, after, after as I say that that fund that was to support the NHS. Talking about players in the pandemic, Graham uh, Carl Walker did a lot for small business owners. I think um, uh, during that time. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, anyone else you'd like to nominate? Yeah, actually, and it's kind of a sad one. But uh, are you all familiar with the story of Hakan Shuker? Good one. Um, Maybe. A soccer player. Yeah. So uh, famed Turkish striker. Uh, He was a big part of that. The 2002 Turkey team that was that was so fun at the World Cup. But uh, 
played a, looking it up, about a 20-year career. Then he goes into politics, but he becomes an outspoken critic of Erdogan, the president. I wouldn't even say outspoken. He's linked to the Gulen movement. And when there are crackdowns against people who are linked to that movement, he had been elected to parliament. He resigns that position, uh, continued hostility, and then an eventual arrest warrant for being anti-government had him flee the country. And I think last I heard, he was... Uh, driving an Uber in California uh, because all of his property and bank accounts had been seized. But I think a person who stands up to uh, governmental overreach, and a lot of that was about uh, like wanting to remove secularization, in in my opinion, at least. I think Erdogan would probably disagree. But I think a player who kind of takes that stand and sacrifices pretty much all his personal wealth he's accumulated uh, has to get a little bit of respect from me. Definitely so. That's a good one. Uh, Joe, any others to add before we uh, wrap this pod up? I do have one. It's Julian Araujo. Uh, There's a story that J. Sam Jones wrote for MLSsoccer.com, and, and there's been some tweets about this as well. But Araujo spent some time around the pandemic, and I think he's still doing this, helping California farm workers. Both of his parents worked in fields, and, and so Araujo has taken time and money to have meals delivered to workers in his hometown in California, which is just, I think, a really awesome thing to do. He's raising awareness for the really challenging conditions that these workers face, and he's helping them too by the meals, obviously. And then he also gave money to the United Farm Workers and providing, uh, again, food as well. So there's a lot of really awesome stuff there. It's pretty cool for anyone to be doing that stuff. It's even cooler, I think, for a 20-year-old to be doing that stuff. Very cool. I didn't know that one. Thank you very much, Joe. And thank you, Drew, for the question. A lot of really good questions today, gents. Thank you very much for all your contributions. Anyone who sent in a question, totalsoccershow.com if you want to send us one as well. But for the time being, Taylor Rockwell, thanks. <laughs> Rave I got you, buddy. <laughs> Graham Rosman, thank you very much, sir. <laughs> no problem at all, Ryan. <laughs> and Joseph Lowry, a pleasure as always, my dear. Oh, right back at you, Ryan. Bye, listener. Bye.